We're going to turn to Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel, and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you, and I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites a land flowing with milk and honey. <coughs> Sorry. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians." Thanks so much, Jen. Well, if you've got Bibles in front of you, do please keep them open. 
Uh, we're going to be focusing primarily on the first half of this chapter uh, this morning. I should introduce myself. My name's Jez. I'm one of the leadership team here. It's so lovely to see so many new faces and familiar faces as well. It's great to see you all as we look at this passage together. Okay. So, many of you will know um, the actress Helena Bonham Carter. Hands up if you know Helena Bonham Carter. You know who she is. Okay, yeah. Some of you will know her because of various films that she's been in. Um, perhaps those who are a little bit younger may know uh, her primarily as Bellatrix Lestrange from Harry Potter. I had to check how that's pronounced because I've not seen Harry Potter, which makes me probably an exile uh, in these parts. But there you go. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter. Now, um, a few years ago, Channel 4 put on a series... Um, called um, My Grandparents' War. And what happens is they um, invited celebrities to come and research the role their grandparents played in the Second World War. And Helena Bonham Carter did that. Her grandfather was called Eduardo. Now, he died when she was three. She never knew him, or didn't know him well, certainly. Um, And... Even whilst he was alive, Eduardo was known to be a secretive man. He didn't really talk about what he was involved in in the Second World War at all. But um, over the course of this program, Helena Bonham Carter finds out more about what her grandfather did in the Second World War. Now, her family, um, including Eduardo, uh, were Spanish Jews. Um, They were from Spain, though they lived in Paris, and Eduardo was a diplomat And what happened was, when the Nazis came to power um, in France, um, they, like many other Jewish families, fled the country. Um, Eduardo and his family went to Bordeaux, where they were living for a week in the consulate in Bordeaux. And as a diplomat, Eduardo's job was to issue visas to people who wanted to come into, um, into Spain. And there were thousands of Jewish families all over Europe at the time trying to flee the Nazis and get to safety. So Spain was a neutral country. If they could get through Spain to Portugal, then maybe they could get to the the port, and then many went to America um, to safety. Now, in Eduardo's job, he was told specifically that he could not issue visas unless the passports of the people who applied for them went to Madrid first. Uh, But he thought this was nonsense, and he wasn't having any of it. So what he did was, for an entire week, um, he would just stamp visas left, right, and center without sending any of the passports um, to Madrid first. And therefore, he enabled um, huge numbers of Jewish families to flee Spain, get into Portugal, and get further out to the West um, or to to the States for for safety. Um, And in the story uh, on the the TV show, um, Helen Bonham Carter, who's on the right there, she gets to meet a woman called Marta Belinsky. And Marta's father was one of the refugees um, who was actually saved because of Eduardo giving him um, a visa. And um, they were chatting together. And uh, a particularly moving part of the documentary was where uh, Marta showed the very passport that her father had Uh, that had Eduardo's signature in it. And this was incredibly moving to Helena Bonham Carter. And it was striking to her that she was speaking with a woman who would not have survived had not her grandfather been as heroic as he was. And so for Helena Bonham Carter, this journey had led to a fresh understanding of who her grandfather was. She'd never known him properly, 
But as she investigated these stories, as she found out more about him, it made her all the more proud and it made her all the more amazed. And sometimes um, we make discoveries about someone we know, discoveries that make us appreciate them all the more. We may realize that we never actually fully understood who they were. We never appreciated them as much as we could have done. And this new information casts a different light on this person. And what if that happened, I want to ask, what if that happened with God? Now, this is a room full of people, and all of us will have a varied sense of who God is, or if we believe in God at all, what our knowledge of him is. There'll be Christians here who um, feel quite experienced in their Christian faith and know God well. Others, 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 it will feel a little bit more sketchy, and some of us may not be sure if there's a God at all. We may have some sense of some ultimate reality or a higher power, but we're not sure. We're in various places, but wherever we're at this morning, I want to say all of us can take a step forward as we look at this passage. This is one of the great passages, Exodus 3 in the whole Bible. Here, God, as it were, introduces himself to us. He gives us his name. And as he shows us, we're going to learn something crucial about who he is and how we approach him. And the good news is, unlike Eduardo, we don't have to wait until God is gone to learn new information about him that casts him in a different light. He can reveal himself to us even today as we look at the scriptures and we can connect with him perhaps in a way that we haven't done before, even this morning, even now. So let's look together at this amazing chapter in Exodus 3. And let me suggest, why don't you right now, just mentally, remove the distractions that are in your head, the things that are bothering you that you came into church with that are on your mind. Why don't you put them to the side and focus your attention? Because like Moses, as we come to a passage like this, well, any passage in the scriptures really, as we come before God, we are on holy ground. So let's focus, shall we? Okay, first of all, approaching God. Approaching God. Just a, a short recap of the book of Exodus. This is our second um, teaching, a second message in this book. God's people, the Israelites, are enslaved. They're in slavery um, because of Pharaoh in Egypt. Moses is an Israelite, and yet... Um, Due to a remarkable chain of events, he grew up in Pharaoh's court as an Egyptian. But one day, the Bible tells us when he was about 40 years old, um, he looked out in a fresh way and gained new perspective about his own people. He saw their oppression, he saw their slavery, and he decided to try and do something about it. He tried to go on a bit of a rescue mission. And it didn't go great, to be honest. He ended up killing an Egyptian. Um, his own people didn't really accept him as their rescuer. Uh, Pharaoh put out a death warrant and he had to go on the run. <laughs> and so he ended up in another country far away called Midian where he gained a family. And by the time we find him right at the beginning here in Exodus 3, look down with me, verse 1, he has become a shepherd. He's looking after the sheep of his father-in-law. Now in Acts 7, um, that comments on this passage, it says that another 40 years have passed 
since he killed that Egyptian. So Moses is in his 80s. And we meet him in the wilderness. He's not even in Midian at this point. He's taking a load of sheep round the desert, an octogenarian shepherd. And it says that he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, the mountain of God is a reference to Sinai, a mountain that will have huge significance in this book. But we, don't, we aren't getting there yet, and Moses didn't know the significance as far as he knows. He's in the middle of nowhere, walking around the desert. So he's walking around the desert in this area, and it says, verse 2, he comes across a bush, a bush that is on fire. Now, in some sense, there's not anything surprising about that. Bushes caught on fire in deserts, that's a kind of standard thing, no surprise there. But there's something about this bush that's different. He must have stared at it for a while to kind of clock the fact that this bush is not like other bushes that are on fire. He realizes that the bush is not being burned up. I don't know how how he realized that. Maybe, you know, he was just stopping for a moment and the sheep were happily bleating by themselves, and he notices this bush, and he keeps staring, his eyes narrow. And maybe he, he doesn't hear the crackling that you would get normally when wood is being burned. He doesn't see the embers flying out. He doesn't see what might be green leaves kind of shriveled into blackness. There's just this bush untouched with this fire that is around it. And it's strange. It says, verse 3, he kind of is curious. He wants to look into it more. He, he checks it out. And then as he does, look at verse 4. A voice comes out of the bush. Moses. Moses. Presumably startled, he offers a kind of response. Here I am. And the voice says, do not come any closer Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. God himself is revealing himself to Moses, and he needs to keep his distance. Holy ground. We use the word holy to describe something that is set apart, that is special in some way, that is not like everything else. And that is the kind of perfect way to describe what God is like. He is special, he is set apart, he is not common. To the point that even the presence where he is becomes sacred where he reveals himself. And so Moses can't just walk around at this presence like he would in Sainsbury's. He has to take his shoes off. Some sign of respect. And then God introduces himself. He says this, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this point, it kind of dawns on Moses what's happening, that God himself, the God of his ancestors, is revealing and speaking to him. He's having an encounter with God. And just look at the reaction of Moses, verse six. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So what began as a curious peek into this bush ends with Moses covering his face. Act 7 tells us that he was trembling with fear 
at this moment. He is terrified. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, at one level, did Moses need to be terrified? No. God, had rev- God was going to speak with him. He hadn't come to kind of launch a thunderbolt at him and smite him on the spot. That wasn't going to happen. But on another level, Moses' reaction was entirely appropriate. You see, in the Bible, it's not uncommon for God to be referred to in light or fire imagery. The fire motif um, happens in Exodus for multiple times, and it is a picture of God's holiness, the fact that he is different, that he is separate, that he is special. And fire communicates something particular, doesn't it? It it communicates purity. God is pure. He is radiant like light. There's an intensity about fire. You can't come too close to it unless you get burnt. And that is what God is like. At one level, he's unapproachable. Coming close to God is kind of like looking at the sun. You can't do it without being damaged. And so the flip side of this is that for those of us who are not like God, who are not as pure as he is, coming into contact with God is something that is not comfortable. It's actually dangerous. It's dangerous. Now, have you ever had the experience of getting up in the morning, kind of uh, in a bit of a rush, in the gloom, you're throwing on some clothes, you need to get out of the house, whether you're going to school or to work or whatever, you throw something on, woof down your breakfast, get out the front door into the light of day, and you're like, oh, there's a stain on my jeans. What is it? Because in the full light of day, the imperfections and the stains become more apparent. And that is what it is like for human beings who are failures and struggle and make lots of mistakes to come before a holy God. Our stains become apparent. We are exposed. And that is what's happening to Moses here. He is before the great and pure, intense holiness of God, and he has to look away. And God has to tell him, don't come any closer. That is an act of kindness. If Moses came closer, he would probably die. What does this teach us about how we approach God? Well, some of us are here and, you know, we're exploring Christianity maybe or we're thinking about, you know, whether Jesus really is who he said he is or whatever. We're in the curiosity stage. We're kind of like Moses. What's that strange sight over there? Strange Christian people, strange Christian religion, trying to figure things out. And that's a good place to be. You know, Moses had to begin there, didn't he, at the beginning of the story. Um, But for progress to happen, Moses couldn't stay at the curiosity stage. He had to move forward to a point, actually, where it became uncomfortable for him. And let me say, you know, sooner or later, if you are looking into what God is all about, what Jesus is all about, as the claims of Jesus sink in, as you really listen to what he's saying and what he teaches, what the Bible tells us about who God is, and by implication, who we are, you will feel exposed. You will feel challenged. It might not be a comfortable experience. 
not what you felt like you signed up for. But let me tell you, it will be one of the best things that could ever happen to you. Because you will appreciate him more. You'll then know that you are in a real encounter with God. You're not just talking to a genie, a heavenly butler who you think is going to manifest every desire you have. You'll know then that you're in a dynamic encounter with a holy being characterized as fire and light. So beware. But that's a good thing. And Christians in the room, how do we approach God now? You think about your prayer life. You think about how you sang songs this morning. Do we approach God with the reverence of Moses? I'm not talking about trembling with fear. You know, the trembling with fear part was not the last stop on Moses' journey with God. But at the very least, Moses recognized who God was in his holiness. Do we have awe and wonder at God? Does that characterize us at all? Does the greatness of God move us? It's worth thinking about. Approaching God. Well, secondly, the name of the Lord. Let's keep reading. Now, that's just the intro, right? God has revealed himself to Moses, but he's not really spoken or given him a message yet. So let's read what he says. Verse 7 says that the Lord has seen the misery of the Israelites. And, and if you remember from last week, that's something that was really important. As God's people have been suffering, God has not been blind to that. He's seen it. He cares. And now he articulates that to Moses. He's seen the misery of his people. And more than that, the Lord is going to do something about it. Verse 8, he has come down to rescue them and bring them into their own land. Not a barren land, but a good land flowing with milk and honey. You remember the promises to Abraham. God promised Abraham that his people would have a land. They would have a home. And God is going to use all of this slavery that the Israelites are in to bring them out and bring them home to a land. And what will that mean for Moses? Verse 10, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses is kind of stunned by this. I mean, the last time he tried to do anything to help the Israelites, it didn't go particularly well. He's now in his 80s, a kind of shepherd out in the middle of nowhere. Not amazing rescuer material, it seems. And so he says, who am I, verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God replies, I will be with you. And he gives them a sign. He says that one day Moses and all the people will be free from Egypt and they will worship God on the very mountain where they are at the moment in Sinai. Then Moses has another question, verse 13. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? It's kind of interesting. Why would they ask for God's name? Many of you will know, if you, if you know um, 
me and my wife Hannah, that we are um, expecting a baby. The bump's very obvious now. You can feel, you can mention it now, just in case you were worried that, you know, she'd put on a lot of weight. <laughs> it's a baby, you know, spoilers. And 95% um, sure, we've been told, that it's a little girl. And one of the things we get asked about is lots, is names. And in fact, everyone's got an opinion on names, haven't they? Um, our next door neighbor, of all people, incredibly invested in the name of our little girl. Um, we told, I, I've told her some of the names that floated around in our discussions, and she's gone, no, that's not a, that's not a good name. You, you need to call her Emily. That's what you need to call her. Or Faye, Faye, that's a lovely name. Thanks, Angie, cheers. I'll take that on board. So we're thinking about names. Some names, though, they're always off the table, aren't they? Particularly with boys. Judas. It's never coming back in, that one, is it? Judas. Adolf. Maybe not. Maybe not. Now, why is it? Why, why, do, we, why do we not choose to name our children certain names? It's because names have significance, isn't it? They have meaning. They're not neutral. They have associations. They're connected with something in our own minds. They don't just float on their own. And this is the case even more so in the ancient world. Names spoke to what sort of person you are. So when the Israelites would ask Moses, what is the name of the God? It would be like, um, as an Old Testament commentator, Alec Matir, has said, it's like them asking, what revelation of God are you bringing? What is he like? And so God's name is very important. And this name is going to have reverberations through the rest of the Bible. What is it? Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, much ink has been spilt on those words. I am who I am. There's a level of mystery and ambiguity to it. What is it all about? Well, it seems to be linked to the name the Lord in verse 15. You look at verse 15, it's got the word Lord, and it's like small capitals. And uh, that name, the Lord, is used over 6,000 times in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Um, it doesn't literally mean Lord. It's um, the letters Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. Um, and it's, uh, it seems to be a shortening of the, of the words I am. So that it's, it's kind of like a personal name. I am. But what does I am mean? Well, there's ambiguity. Um, some ways it can be translated as I will be who I will be. And some people prefer that translation. They often point to verse 12, if you look at verse 12. So God is, I will be who I will be. So who will he be? I will be with you. And I think there's possibly something to that, you know, the fact of God's presence with us. But when you look at how the name is used and, and the themes develop through the Old Testament and into the New, it seems that I am, rather than I will be, takes the prominence. But we're still left with the idea, okay, well, what does it mean, though? Well, I think we have an image of it in the burning bush. Let's just think about the burning bush. Why would God reveal himself as a fire in a bush 
that doesn't get burned. Well, if, if this fire is not burning the bush, it means that the, the bush is not fuel for the fire. The implication being that the fire doesn't need the bush. It burns without fuel. It's self-sufficient. It's self-existent. You know, the greatest fires, you know, whether that's um, a bonfire at a park in November or the forest fires that are happening um, on the other side of the Atlantic, the greatest fires are still dependent on fuel and oxygen and eventually they will burn out. But the fire in the burning bush isn't burning up the bush and that can only be because it doesn't need the bush. This fire is self-sufficient. This fire is inexhaustible. It will just keep going. And I think that is a visual depiction of God's name, I am. God is self-sufficient, self-determining. He does not need anything outside of himself to sustain his life. He needs nothing. He just is. I am. And nothing more needs to be said. You know, as humans and creatures, if we think about ourselves, we are dependent in so many ways, aren't we? We need food and water and shelter. We need human company and care and compassion. We need a good climate. Um, We need the laws of physics so that our body chemistry can keep working as it should. But God does not need anything at all. That's what he's saying. His divine life as Father, Son, and Spirit is completely independent. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need wisdom. He doesn't need to wait for someone else to get their job done so he can do his job after them. Every resource he needs is found in himself. He doesn't need us He loves you deeply, but he does not need you. He doesn't need our songs. He doesn't need our praise. When we sang before, it's not like we kind of picked him up because he was feeling a little bit low. He is completely self-sufficient. And if we think about that self-sufficiency, it implies even, even greater things that start to melt our brains. He doesn't need anything in creation, including material space, because he's spirit. He exists everywhere, simultaneously, at once. He is not limited by time. He is the fire that keeps on burning. He has never had a beginning. He will never have an end. There's nothing greater than him that caused him. He's not even limited by time. He experiences all moments simultaneously. He is who he is, and he will always be. He's never empty and in need of filling from outside. In fact, he is always full to the brim, always overflowing. He is fullness of life like a fountain in which everything else in creation finds its source of life. He's the source and fullness of all being 
he is. It's a strange thing to say, isn't it? I am. Normally that is a sentence that needs completing. One writer, Samuel Bostock, has put it like this. You know, normally if we want to say what something is, we give them a definition. Susie is a sheep. Rebecca is a rabbit. We can't do that to God. There's nothing in creation that we can put on the end of that sentence which will properly sum up who he is. Even our own language isn't enough to capture him. He is who he is. He just is. And this should humble us, shouldn't it? I don't know what you think, you know, if you pray and you close your eyes, what do you imagine God is like? What image is in your head? It might be a, a giant human. I think we often think of God like a giant human. He's like us, but he's stronger and he's bigger and he can see more things. He's not like that. He's completely other. He transcends reality so much that we, we can't get a picture of him in our minds. Or the picture we have is insufficient to grasp him in, his, in all his fullness. Now, I know our brains are getting ready to overheat from what I'm saying. This is way too philosophical for a Sunday morning. I get it. And we can feel like, look, I, I don't understand. that. Like, I can't get my head around this. But that is partly why, that is entirely why, he is so worthy of worship. Because he's so much greater than we are. He's greater than we ever thought. There will always be more about God to chew on, always more to think about, to reflect on, to be amazed by, always. And God's name, I am, speaks to all of this. He's self-sufficient. He's perfect. He needs nothing outside of himself. And amazingly, you know what this passage says? He says that the I am is going to help Israel. He's going to help people. And he would even use Moses to do it. You might think, what does this have to do with me? I mean, okay, nice philosophy lesson. What does that have to do with me in my day-to-day? Well, this God, the I am, just like he did to Moses, calls our name personally. He calls out to you. He wants to know you and help you and bless you. And he is revealed in the Lord Jesus. If you read um, in, in John's Gospel, there's a, there's a point where Jesus uses the divine name to describe himself. This is from John 8 on the screen. Your father Abraham, this is Jesus speaking, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they, that's the religious leaders, said to him, and you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. Literally, it's before Abraham was, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So Abraham was born, I mean, hundreds of years before the burning bush, let alone when Jesus was around, thousands of years later. And yet Jesus says that he preceded Abraham before Abraham was I am even more than that he doesn't just say before Abraham was I was which would be enough of a statement he says before Abraham was I am Jesus is the God who is 
He has all the divine fullness in and of himself. He's not a mere person, um, a mere uh, teacher, or a mere human. He is God in the flesh. And you know how explosive that claim is because people tried to stone him for saying it. You know, people have lots of ideas about who Jesus is. A friend of mine, he did um, a Christianity Explored course down in London. And what happens is in that course, you look at the Gospel of Mark and you find out more about Jesus. And, and there's this point where the leaders of the course said, you know, well, Jesus couldn't just be a good teacher. Um, you know, either he was crazy, either he was evil, or he must be something more. So who do you think Jesus is? And it's that classic moment where you think, you know, try and, try and see what the people in the group say. And my friend said, maybe he was an alien. Kind of caught the leaders off guard. I think they didn't know what to say. There are all sorts of opinions about who Jesus was or is. But in his own words, the Lord Jesus is the great I am. He's the God of the burning bush. He's the self-sufficient one. From all eternity, he is the fire that needs no fuel. He's inexhaustible. The Son, who with the Father and Spirit comprise the one God, creator of all, containing fullness of life. This is who God is. So what should our response be then, just briefly as we close? A couple of things. At one level, it's pretty simple. Our response should be worship. This should awe us. And if you feel like you're lacking in awe, <laughs> this is something to reflect on and think about. We all have moments of awe, don't we? Stargazing on a clear night, the view from Snowden. These things can take our breath away. But the greatest marvel in all reality is this one whom we've seen this morning, God. You know, even if Jesus had not gone to the cross for our sins, even if he had not died to save us, even if he had not risen again, he would still be worthy of all our worship and praise just for who he is, let alone what he's done. But isn't it amazing? Not only is he the great I am, he is the great I am who has come to earth, taken on flesh, died in our place and saved us. How much more reason do we have to worship him, to reflect on who he is, to seek to know him better? Maybe sometime this week, find some peace and quiet, turn the phone off, have a look about at this passage again, reflect on it, and ask God to show you more of himself and his greatness from this passage. The only fitting response to who God is, is worship. And lastly, look at verse 11 again. Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? The Lord's reply is, I will be with you. What are you going into this week? What battles are you facing? If you're a believer who trusts in the Lord Jesus, you have nothing less than the great I am who is there with you to strengthen you. That's enough to pick up any of us, isn't it? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you reveal yourself to us through the Lord Jesus. We think of this passage and all it reveals about your holiness and your greatness. The fact that we can't come casually to you. You're unapproachable. And yet you've brought us into your presence, welcomed us in through the Lord Jesus. Lord, forgive us if we've lost our awe. Show us again your greatness and the greatness of your Son so that we may worship and find strength this week and in the days ahead. Lord, help us to see you just a little bit more in your beauty and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.